Thank you, Gordon and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream in our morning service. We are in the book of Galatians, which I started through this book last week with an introductory message. And so we're just in the first few verses, first five verses of this book of Galatians. I've, I've titled this message, New Testament Authority, because I want us to get that picture and that flavor of what Paul is doing here as he writes his first inspired words. This is his first book in the New Testament. And so it's very important how he does this and why he's doing it. So let me try to, at the few words here, introductory words, give you kind of an overall picture, and then we'll come back and center on these words. The, the only real issue in life is the gospel. Well, there are lots of issues, and there are small and large issues in our life. But what I mean is, when it's all said and done, when this life is over, there will only be one thing that was important, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and whether or not you accepted it or whether you rejected it. You know, in the book of Job, we have this interesting picture as that book begins of God pulling back the curtain and letting us see backstage. <laughs> you know, in a, in a play where something is going on out front, there are people behind that are really running everything, pulling the strings, turning on the lights, you know, setting up everything. God pulls the curtain back in the book of Job, and we see Satan and God deciding what they're going to do with Job. And of course, Satan can only do what God allows him to do, but God allows him to do a lot. And so we see that and we realize that in this life, there are things going on in the eternal places and behind the scenes, so to speak, where we think these things are important, but they're really nothing compared to the eternal view that God the Father and Satan and angels and those who have gone on before us, that view that they have. I read uh, the book of 1 John. I was reading this week in my Bible reading and came across a familiar verse, but I had to stop and think about this short verse again in 1 John 2, 17. You know, after John says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, you know, uh, he talks about that. And then verse 17 says, and the world is passing away. The world is passing away and the lust thereof. And yet he that does the will of God is the one that abides forever. That is a huge statement when you think about it. All that we worry about, all that we're concerned about, all of our aches and pains, all of our heartaches and everything that happens like that, and even our physical sufferings passing away and will be gone forever. That, that's a huge statement. Now, Satan then has a mighty work to do. Because you know what his work is? His work is to populate hell forever. That's his work. That's what he's doing. He has his kingdom designed in the lake of fire and in, and in hell. Of course, he knows, too, that he will suffer like everyone else will there because Satan is, or hell is even made for the devil and his angels. And yet, 
He is centered on one thing in this life, and that is to populate that place, to get you to the place of death where the decision has been made and no other decision can be made. So he arranges his demons, he arranges his work so that this world is geared toward people going down that broad road and dropping off that precipice into hell. Whether it's religion, whether it's politics, whether it's the riches of this world, whether it's the entertainment in this world, or as the verse says, or the lust thereof. It's all designed for that. And you know what Satan realizes is? He just needs to get a person to one point. That is, if he can get them to this point, then he's got them. That point is called death. Just in a few years, just in a short time, if he can get that person to not hear the gospel, refuse the gospel, be antagonistic toward the gospel, and get to that point, done. Got him forever. And he has him forever. You ever hear somebody say, well, I, don't, I wouldn't mind going to hell. I, that's where all my friends are going to go. How sad to think like that. The one example we have in Luke 16 of the rich man who died, in hell he lifted up his eyes being in torments. And what was his one request? Tell nobody to come to this place. It is forever. And yet, folks, when you and I who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ come to that point of death, all eternity in heaven is open unto us so that this life will matter little too. And we will have life eternal. As a matter of fact, it's at the point that we accept the gospel. It's at the point that we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior that our eternity is secure. A lost person has that opportunity till the moment they die, but then it's gone. I heard somebody say or, or write the other day, uh, it was written that uh, the saints in heaven are happier than we are, but no more secure than the saints that are still on the earth. We have that eternal life uh, the moment we accept Christ as our Savior. So Satan would have taken the whole world, that is the globe and everything that God made, but he couldn't. It's deeded to the Lord Jesus Christ. It does, the, the world doesn't belong to him. So you know what Satan did? He took the people of the world. He came to Adam and Eve, our parents, and he got them to disobey God and become lost in their sins and so that everyone who ever came from Adam and Eve is lost until they get saved. And if they don't get saved, they're his forever. He knew that and he worked at it and that's the way it is at this time. And so he can't wait until that moment when a lost person dies. As a matter of fact, remember Hebrews 2... 14, he even has the power of death, that is, Satan. That's his power. Then he has you forever. Well, the good news is that Jesus Christ is going to take back what belongs to him. And as someone put it, uh, he landed on planet Earth and began taking back what Satan had stolen, and he's doing it one person at a time. He's taking back what Satan stole in this whole world, the God of this world, and he's doing it one person at a time. Well, he made provision. He paid the price. 
for you and for me. And for, he paid the, Jesus paid the price for every person in the world so that they can come to him if they will. And then he sent out apostles and prophets and Christians into this world, and he went back to the Father. And he said, you keep doing this until I come back. Get as many people one for heaven, secure in their salvation and secure in their eternal life. I will come back and judge the rest of it. And we've been doing that for 2,000 years. It's been our job, uh, this army that we're in, uh, to fight that battle for 2,000 years. Let me tell you something, folks. Then you and I are the strangers here. You and I are the pilgrims here. You and I are the ones that the world doesn't know. It is a hostile world out there to the gospel and always has been. Strange as it may seem that here's the good news of eternal life and escape from that place called hell, and yet they are hostile toward it, angry toward it, mad at it, as when they should have rejoiced that Lazarus was written, risen from the tomb, and yet they wanted to kill him and everybody else, angry about it. So, folks, remember this. Be faithful unto death. Death isn't so bad when you think about it like that. Don't dip your colors. You are an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ with the greatest message that this world could ever uh, know. Don't dip your colors. Don't be taken captive. <laughs> Stay in the battle. Don't, don't be taken captive by your enemy to where you're not effective in this world. And stay focused. Don't get sidetracked into other issues. You're a Christian. You're an ambassador. You're a missionary. You're a heralder. You know, the word for preacher in the, in the Bible is the word heralder. You ha we have that word once in our English Bible, and it's back in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when Nebuchadnezzar you know, made the furnace, and then he sent out the musicians, and he said, when you hear the musicians, you've got to bow down or you're going in the fiery furnace. And he sent out a heralder and said, when you hear the music, bow down or you'll be cast into the furnace. That was the heralder. We kind of, you know, we have heralders in our history. But you know what we are? You and I are heralders. We are heralding the message. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're ambassadors, heralders of the message of reconciliation. So, with that in mind, I want us to go to the book of Galatians. With that in mind, here is the greatest apostle, the greatest missionary, the one that had that message on his heart more than anyone has ever had it on his heart, who said, I must preach this message, and I am going to uh, give the first mark and the first word toward that. You know, this last week, uh, April 19th, which was Wednesday of last week, uh, we passed a milestone in American history. Uh, actually, it's an anniversary of a milestone. It was called the shot that was heard around the world. On April 19, 1775, 
in Concord, Massachusetts, the British forces over here across the North Bri the old North Bridge, and a few pilgrims over here, and somebody fired that first shot, and it was heard around the world, and it started the American Revolution. The book of Galatians is the shot heard around the world. As I said last week in the introduction, even in the Reformation, Luther called this the battle cry of the Reformation, this book of Galatians. And I'm just saying when Paul began this, he was saying the law is done. There is no other eternal life except through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the declaration of independence for the Christian. This is, this is the, the shot heard around the world. So I want us to look at it because, you know, we often, when we read a book like this, boy, we can read these introductory verses in about 10 seconds and we're done with it, right? We, we don't think much about it. Oh, we know who Paul is. Okay, I know about Galatian. Uh, okay, I'm on. What else do you have to say? I think Paul carefully crafts these first words so that they introduce what the rest of the book has to say and what is heavy on his heart. So, Revelation is God's Word, and he begins here with the Apostle Paul. So, notice that uh, I, I give it in simple terms, that there are, there's messenger here, messengers, plural, because I'm going to include you and me, and then there are recipients, those who can receive the gospel, and there is an authority given to us to go out in the world and preach the gospel. Those things are absolutely necessary, and we need to know what they are. So notice with me in verse 1, the messengers here as we begin. You know what the first word that Paul ever wrote under inspiration was? His own name. And that was important because before he was saved, that wasn't the name he used. Before he got saved, he used a Jewish name, and that name was Saul. Now, that was a good name, and Paul was of the tribe of Benjamin, and there was really one famous person in the Old Testament uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, and that was King Saul. And so if you were from Benjamin and you had the name Saul, you had a glorious name. You had a very important name in the Old Testament. But, of course, it is true that Saul in the Jewish language is Paul in the Roman or Greek language. So he's playing around as a little boy in, in Tarsus, you know, up there in the Galatia area. He's playing around, and when his Jewish friends called to him, he said, Saul, Saul, come and play with us. But when his Roman and Greek friends called to him, he said, Paul, Paul, come and play with us. He had both names because he grew up in that kind of a world. Well, as his Jewish background, and under his Jewish name, he was the persecutor of the church. He tried to destroy it. As I said a little bit ago, he was one of those that hated this new message of Christianity. What do you mean the law is done? What do you mean we don't have to keep it anymore? What do you mean that salvation is only by faith? And you, are you telling me salvation goes to the Gentiles? So he was adamant about that, and he was on his way to persecute more of those Christians when God stepped in, and God saved him by miraculous means because he's calling his apostle. And so we find out that as soon as he went out on his first missionary journey, before he ever got very far at all, 
his name was changed. It happened in Acts 13, uh, and, and uh, as he's going across the island of Cyprus with Barnabas, and John Mark is with him at this point, it says, Elamus the sorcerer withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, and then we have these words, who is also called Paul. Now Luke is writing this book, and he's going to write it later. But from that verse on in the New Testament, he will never refer to himself again as Saul. He will be Paul from this point on. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that is the sorcerer, and said, O oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? He began preaching this gospel, and he went into his home territory, Galatia, with the name Paul, not the name Saul. And why is that? Because he knows he's the apostle to the Gentiles. God called him to, to preach to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And so we know that in Romans eleven thirteen, when he writes to them, he says, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am not an apostle, uh, uh, I am an apostle, excuse me, to the Gentiles. And then he says, and I magnify my office. I want you to think about that. I magnify my office. God has called me to this special task of giving you the message of salvation by faith, and I magnify that. I, I'm not ashamed of it. I don't shy away from it. I am preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And I want you to remember that because he says, secondly, I'm, uh, my name is Paul, an apostle. We don't have apostles today. There were only a few of them, 12 and a couple replacements. Paul was one born out of due time. But when he says, I'm an apostle, he's saying, I'm not just Paul, the, the speaker to the Gentiles. I am sent by God. I'm an apostle. You, do you remember when they had to replace Judas? And, and so they, they had two uh, choices, Matthias and Barsabbas in Acts chapter 1, and they, and they had those two, and it came down to deciding which one should, should replace Judas, and they stopped and said, we can't decide this. Only God can call an apostle. And so they used the Old Testament method of casting lots, and God says, okay, I'll use that. And God says, I want Matthias. And they said, Matthias is the apostle. Why? Because an apostle is sent by God, not by man. Isn't he going to say that in our verse? Not by man, not by other men, only by God himself. So he is the apostle. Now, before we leave that thought, here's what I want to impress on you. You know what your name is? You know what your new name is? Christian. It was up there in that Gentilish church at Antioch. The first church started beyond Jerusalem up there in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 where Paul and, and Barnabas are teaching and the rest and we're told in Acts 11, 25 and 26 the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You and I are Gentiles, most of us I guess anyway, 
and we live in a Gentile world. We live in a Gentile area. And you know what our name is? Christian. We live in a hostile world that Satan has taken captive, and we are the enemy. <laughs> we are Christians. And when Paul says, I magnify my office, what I'm saying to you is, magnify your office. You're a Christian. I know you're not an apostle. You're not a prophet. Neither am I. I'm a Christian. And we live in this hostile world. And they need the message that we have. When we sing onward Christian soldiers, I, I know our generation doesn't like such language. But how true that is. That we are soldiers in the army of God for this cause. And Paul was there ahead of us and we are there with him. Secondly, I want you to notice that he says that there are new associates now. When he says not from men nor through man but through Jesus Christ. Well, he's got some new associates, and here are the negatives. Our message doesn't come from human beings. Our message doesn't come from the wisdom of this world. As I've said often, Christianity is a message of revelation. That's why we talk about an inspired book that an inspired writer wrote, and we have it in an inspired volume called the Bible. It comes from God, and no other book that has ever been written equals this book. Every other religion in the world is a humanistic religion that comes from the thinking processes of human beings. I made this one up. I did this. We started this, whatever. Only Christianity is a revealed religion. And here we have it in this book. And so he is going to say, and, and notice the singular and the plural probably has significance here. Not from men, plural. Not from the pretenders, not from all of those people who have said it's another way. As a matter of fact, look, look at verses 6 and 7 of, of chapter 1. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Are those detractors, those people who are saying, well, don't listen to Paul. He's a latecomer. You know, he, he was a persecutor. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. We're the real speakers. He says, it's not from men like that, this gospel that I'm telling you about. And it's not through any man, singular, any founder of religion. Think of all of the religions in this world followed by millions of people who are founded by one man who is not even a believer in Jesus Christ. Somebody who made up a religion or a political movement that became a religion or whatever. By a man like that? How many antichrists, John says even now there are many antichrists, how many have there been that people have followed? Christianity did not come from men or from a man. It's not through them. As we will see in the point number C, and that is, rather, we have a new authority, and that's from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But let me tell you this before we leave the second point, and that is, we as Christians are brothers and sisters. I love that verse in 1 Peter where he says, as servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood. And sisters, you're in that too. <laughs> love the sisterhood and the brotherhood. Love, love the family of God. Love one another. We're fellow pilgrims. We're fellow soldiers. 
We're fellow brothers and sisters to Jesus Christ and children of God. Love the brotherhood. Why is it that God instructed us to meet like this like we do? So we love one another, serve with one another, support one another, love the brotherhood. In other words, uh, honor and magnify your office. We're brothers. So thirdly in this first point is, of course, there's a new authority now. And what is that authority? Not from men or through a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Here are the positives. And if you don't think that's important at the beginning of this letter, there we have it in verse 1. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 4, according to the will of God our Father. Three times in these five verses, he is going to hit this again. My message comes from God the Father. My message doesn't come from man. It doesn't even come from me. It comes from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, number one, Jesus Christ, our Savior, here at least in this verse, is the resurrected. He's the resurrected one because, number two, God the Father is the resurrector. He's the one that raised him from the dead. And so we have a, a supernatural message of resurrection, bodily resurrection, and all that goes with it because Jesus Christ is our Lord, and secondly, God is our Father who raised him from the dead. Can anybody in the Jewish religion say that? No. Can anybody in the Islamic religion say that? No. Anybody in the Mormon religion say that? No. Can anybody in any religion say that? No. God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's my authority, and he's saying it plainly. I would add the Holy Spirit to this, although in our text of these five verses, he doesn't say that, but it's through the, Lord, it's through the Holy Spirit Excuse me, that he calls us, that conviction that comes, that work of the Spirit on our heart. So look at verse 6 who called you by or called you in the grace of Christ he called you not to a different gospel to my gospel that's the holy spirit again in verse 15 he'll say the same thing he called me through his grace so folks you and i we have an authority to do what we're doing our authority is god the father god the son god the holy spirit and all the miraculous works that go with only the godhead do you want any other kind of authority? Do you, do you need any other kind of authority? Don't we soon forget? Let me end this first point with Romans chapter 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say then to these things? If, if God be for us, what? Who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Why should we be ashamed? Why should we be afraid of these kinds of things? So, messengers. Secondly, recipients then, just a from and a to in verse 2. That is, from, not from men, but from all the brethren who are with me and to the, the churches of Galatia. So, from, from us, the recipients. Now, it's true, folks, that it would be nice 
to have heard Paul preach and get our gospel directly from Paul or Peter or John or, or even the Lord Jesus himself, but we didn't receive it from them, did we? As a matter of fact, we don't have any apostles today. There are no prophets preaching to us today. We don't have the church fathers today. We don't even have the reformers today. We don't even have the, the great awakening evangelists today. You know who we have? You and me. We have us. You know who the recipients are? That's why I say the gospel is always from new believers to new believers. It falls to you and me to take up the mantle. It falls to you and me to do these things. The brethren who are with me. Who, who was it at that time? Well, Barnabas was with him. We know that. Those Christians in Antioch were with him. We know about Mark. We know about Timothy. We know Silas will be chosen here at the end. So we know a few. You know what they were? They were all new believers. They, were all, they hadn't been saved but a, a, a year or two or a few years themselves. That's all they were. And folks, you know what? We're all new believers. That's right. We're all new believers. We didn't exist before our generation. We didn't exist before we were born. We, were, we all had to be born again. And being born again, you're a new believer. As far as history goes, as far as Christianity even goes, we're new believers. Now, there's a whole crowd behind us, and there are more to come in front of us, but that's not our battle, is it? Our battle is right here with our time and our generation. So we may seem small when we look around us in this world and they take the polling and they do all of those kinds of things and there's only so many Christians and there's so many people going to church. And by the way, you evangelical type, you born-again type, you're really in the minority in this world. Don't you know it? Hebrews 12, you know this word. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with what? So great a cloud of witnesses. No, Paul's not here, and Peter and John aren't here, but they're cheering for you. And the other apostles and the first century Christians and all the martyrs who were martyred for their faith, they're cheering for you. They're saying, stay in there. They can't be on the field any longer, but they're in the stands saying, I'm cheering for you. I'm for you. Keep on doing what you're doing. Don't let down until you die. Keep doing these things. So let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's who, what we do. Now, so we're the new believers it comes from. If anybody's going to hear the gospel today, yeah, they, they read what Paul wrote, but they hear it from you and me. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? That's what we're in the business of doing. Two, he says, the churches of Galatia. I think somebody said this is the only letter where Paul addresses multiple churches instead of one church. Isn't that interesting? Because in the area of Galatia, he had just gotten back from his first missionary journey. So, you know, the churches that we know at that time was the church at Antioch, or, uh, Antioch and Jerusalem. Maybe one in between, like in Samaria, but we're not told about it. 
We know there was a church left in Antioch of Pisidia up there in, in Galatia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Six churches. Six churches is all. Out of a whole Roman Empire, out of a Greek culture, out of 1,500 years of Jewish history, six little churches. I'm writing to you from the churches and to the churches. So that's why I say it's from new believers and it's to new believers. When he says, I'm an apostle, and then he says, I'm writing to you, that carried more weight than you can imagine. That's like saying, I'm Elijah, I'm Moses. I am an apostle from God sent to you. You better listen, regardless of who else is out there, regardless of what happens. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the perfecting of the saints and the work of the ministry. And you and I fall in there somewhere. So, it's our generation to our generation. That's all I'm saying. We talk about a great generation here or there. Maybe there's been great generations of Christians. I'm sure there has been. But we can't rely on them. They're gone now. It's you and me. So, the messengers, the recipients, and then thirdly, what about our authority? Do we have the authority to do this? It was very important that Paul not only say these words, but help them understand that what I'm about to tell you and how I'm about to explain the gospel of faith alone, you better understand this comes from God or you'll throw it out right away. You'll say, that's crazy. We never heard such a thing. So understand that it comes from God. You know, uh, in 1973 in this country, we did kind of an interesting thing. Congress passed the World or, or the War Powers Act. The War Powers Act. You know why? Because we needed to know who has the right to declare a war. That's why. Because all kinds of presidents got us all into all kinds of trouble. Uh, Woodrow Wilson got us into World War I. FDR got us decided to put us into World War II. Truman decided to put us in Korea. Johnson decided to put us in Vietnam. And finally, in 73, they said, now, wait a minute. Who's the authority here for war? Who's the authority for us to get into battle like this? And in a way, Paul kind of has his own War Powers Act, and this is what it is. God is saying, preach this gospel. God is saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So I want you to notice that Paul, I have four things here uh, from actually verse 3, 4, and 5. And Paul describes it in four ways, and I want you to simply consider these with me. Number one, our authority comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because it comes from the substitution made by God. What does he say here in verse 4? Who gave himself for our sins? I know I have said it often, but that great doctrine of substitution comes from that very small word, F-O-R, in the Scripture. He gave himself for you and for me. And Jesus Christ gave himself for everyone you speak to and everyone you preach the gospel to. You can say that with authority. God loved you. God gave himself for you. 
So, so listen uh, to this as I read you just a couple, a couple verses. Romans 5, 6 through 8. When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Substitution in your place where you should have died. And if you don't accept him, you will die in hell forever with no end to try to pay for your sins. And you can't pay for them, but he could pay for them. He died for you. Titus 2, 14 and 15, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise you. These are the doctrines of grace. These are the doctrines of faith. These are the doctrines that save the soul. Substitution by God is our authority. Secondly, deliverance through God. So he'll say that he might deliver us from this present evil age. The word might there is important. It's in what they call a subjunctive mode, which means, well, maybe it'll happen to you, maybe it won't. Maybe you'll receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe you won't. But he gave himself for you that you might, that you might be delivered from, this, from your sin and from hell and from this present evil world. You remember Peter preaching at Pentecost. He said this, The promises to you and your children, to all who are afar off, and as many as the Lord our God will call. And then it says, For with uh, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. <laughs> Salvation will give you eternal life in heaven, and that'd be enough if that's all you ever get. But that, that life can be more abundant right here and now. He can deliver you from a, a wasted life, a, a terrible life, an immoral life, a godless life, a broken life. He can deliver you from that. And then he says it again, or Paul says it in, in Philippians 2.15, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're lights in this, in this world, and we're delivering people from this darkness. Thirdly is the will of God. And so he says, then uh, in verse 4, toward the end, according to the will of God, our Father. Do you know that God wants you to be saved? It's God's will that you be saved. 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Yes, it's God's will for salvation. Yeah, is it God's will for you to be president of the United States? I hope so. Uh, somebody would. But I don't know that. Is it, is it God's will for you to live in, in uh, Missouri instead of Texas? I don't know. Maybe. But I do know this about it. It's God's will for you to be saved. So one thing I know is God's will for you 
And if you don't know Christ as Savior, that's what he wants. I was thinking the other day, too, about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Can you imagine if it had been God's will to let Jesus Christ miss the cross and not have to go to the cross? It would mean that it's not God's will for any of us to be saved. And Jesus knew that. And he was expressing his human nature, his human will, not in a sinful way, but in a way that shows, no, not my will, but thine be done. So he died on that cross so that it's God's will not only for him to die as our substitute, but for you to be saved because of the price that he paid. And lastly, I just want to emphasize the glory of God. And so he'll say finally in verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. <laughs> to whom, to him be glory forever and ever. Psalm 79, 9 and 13. Help us, O God, our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Verse 13, so we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Help us, Father, to do this. Help us to be strong in, in our uh, this salvation that we are preaching. And we will praise you forever and ever. Literally, unto the, ages, unto the age of the ages, unto the ion of the ions, of the eternity of the eternities. And you know what? When we read such words, I don't know if we have an English word for that. Well, we have forever. Maybe that catches it. Eternally. Maybe that catches it. Everlasting, maybe that does. How do we describe the eternity of the eternities? How do you describe such a thing? John Newton, so he wrote his song and said, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise. 10,000 years doesn't diminish it one thing. You've got just as much time left after a million years or after 10 million years. Or after an eternity, you still have as much time left as you started with. I think that's a great thought. I will praise you forever and ever. Oh, folks, what is this life? A few years? What is this life? You're going you're gonna to be, and if we're describing praising God in heaven throughout eternity, how long is hell? How long is the lake of fire? You will be there without Christ with no end. After 10,000 years, you might as well just begun. And, you'd, and you would give up heaven for a few things in this world? This world is passing away and the lust thereof. I had a bunch of verses about peace here at the end. Why do you fight a war? Why do you fight a war? You know why? For peace, right? <laughs> you fight a war to put an end to war. You fight a war to, to have peace. Oh, Jesus said, John 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Romans 10, 15, the gospel of peace 
and glad tidings and good things. James, the fruit of the righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Ephesians 2, he came and preached peace to you. And Romans 16, 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The world is passing away. Be where God is. Be where the peace is. And have that peace not only in this life, but for eternity. We're, we're in the army. We're on the team. We're in this family together. This is what we do in this world. There's nothing more important than this. And that's what Paul's trying to emphasize even in his introduction. As we go through this book, boy, he will sound this trumpet over and over again. Salvation is by faith alone. So I hope that you know him as your Savior. And if not, you would accept him as Christ, as, as your Savior today. Stand with me, if you will. As we stand, we'll sing a song in just a moment, as we always do here in the auditorium. We always give an invitation after uh, a message. And uh, yet God has to speak to your heart and, and burden you about what your need is right now. So let's pray together before we sing. Father, we thank you for this, this great book, part of our New Testament, part of our Scripture. And Father, we thank you that uh, we see that it belongs to us too. It belongs in our generation as much as Paul's. And we have such a burden on our heart today too. So Father, burden us with this gospel. Burden us with this need in the world. And help, Father, that as we study these things, we might, that burden might grow and be more effective. So speak to every heart today. Maybe someone hearing my voice here or, or, or later uh, doesn't know Christ as Savior. I pray, Father, that the gospel of grace would come to that person. They would accept Christ. And Father, help us then to be good ambassadors and preachers and teachers and in the generation in which we live. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need, and we'll thank you for our always in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a song. Our invitation's open as we sing, or when our service is over, our invitation's still ho uh, open, so you do what the Lord is leading you to do this morning. Gordon's going to come and lead us in the song.